a teenage girl goes missing during a hurricane. The first time her mother allows her to be left home alone. When her mother returns home, the house is covered in blood. Other than that, no clues are ever found as to the girl's disappearance. What happened to Lee Yochi? Welcome, 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 everyone. This is Brad with KMH Podcast. This week we are learning about Lee Ochi, a girl who was living in Tupelo, Mississippi, when she d- disappeared during Hurricane Andrew. I know based on recent weeks, y'all are used to me doing some housekeeping up front, but alas, I have none today. We have had more people join the private chat group on Facebook Unfortunately, I was not responsible enough as a host to go write down their names before I started recording, and I'm just far too lazy to stop and start over at this point. So if you're new to the group, welcome. We love you, and I'll try to get your shout-out in next time. But we're going to jump right into this case. So Lee Ochi was living in Tupelo, Mississippi during her 13th year on Earth when she went missing. Her disappearance occurred sometime on the morning of August 27, 1992. Lee's mother, Vicki, left for work between 7.35 and 7.40 a.m., leaving Lee at home alone for the first time ever. The plan was that Lee's grandmother would pick her up later that morning to go to an open house at her middle school, then meet up with her mom so the three of them could eat dinner at Taco Bell. Now, this date, or at least the time period, may ring a bell with some folks because it's the same time that Hurricane Andrew was tearing through the Gulf Coast. Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane and one of the most destructive in American history. It had made landfall in Florida on August 24th before heading out back into the Gulf of Mexico and swinging up into Louisiana on August 26th. From there, it headed east into Mississippi the next day, which is the day of our story. And just as a chance to learn a little so you can grow today, if you don't know, Tupelo's the town in Mississippi about 50 miles east of the University of Mississippi, a.k.a. Ole Miss, and two hours southeast of Memphis. Tupelo is best known as the birthplace of Elvis Presley. So there, some fun facts. You grew a little. Congrats. Now back to the story. Now, Vicki was known to be very strict about how she wanted her house and her life ordered, likely from her days in the military. She would not allow her daughter, Lee, to be on the phone for longer than 10 minutes at a spell. Though that wasn't much of a problem for Lee because she was considered a bit of a pest by her peers and really wasn't very popular. She was made fun of for being the horse girl at school and only wanted to play games where she could pretend to be a horse. She seemed to get along well with adults and animals, however, though adults did find her to be a tad needy, thinking she was ignored a lot. Because of the bad weather, which included dozens of tornadoes produced by Andrew, Vicky became worried and called home around 8.30 to see if Lee was okay. There are conflicting reports about how badly Vicky believed the storms would be that day. Lee, however, was apparently terrified of storms. Now, when Vicky tried calling at 8.30, Lee didn't answer. 
This worried Vicky, and so she returned back home, which was only a mile and a half away. When she pulled into her driveway, she noticed a very strange sight. The garage door was open. And not just was the door open, but the automatic light in their garage was on, meaning that the door had just recently been opened. I think, from what I read, this particular model, the light would stay on for five minutes after you opened the door. When questioned by the police, Vicki could not specifically remember if she had closed the garage door that morning, but it was her normal routine to do so. Regardless, with the light being on, we know that the door had to have been opened shortly before Vicki arrived home. Upon entering the house, Vicki found that an outside door was unlocked. This she knew was wrong because she had made sure to check every door before she left for work to make sure they were locked. She, of course, immediately searched the house and could not find Lee. When she made it to Lee's bedroom, she made what to her was a frightening discovery. Lee's favorite blanket was left crumpled in the middle of her bedroom floor, which is something Lee would never do. At this point, which was about 9 a.m., Vicki called 911 to report her child is missing. When police arrived on the scene, they were able to confirm that there was no evidence of a forced entry, but they did find significant signs of a struggle. There were fresh, wet blood stains on the walls, on the carpet, and the bathroom countertop. There was a trail of blood that led from the bathroom down the hallway into the living room and out the back door. Investigators also found blood and hair stuck on a doorframe about five feet off the ground, suggesting Lee had hit her head. Lee was about 4'10 or 4'11 when she went missing. There was also blood on the nightgown and bra Lee had been wearing when she was last seen by her mother. And those items were strangely found in the laundry hamper. The blood appeared to have been drops that likely came from a wound Lee suffered from above her neckline, according to investigators. So the nightgown was not covered in blood. It was streaked in blood, I guess we could say. Now, strangely, it appeared that someone had tried to clean up the blood in the bathroom, but no bloody towel could be located. The police collected the blood and noted that it was type O, which may have been Lee's blood type. Vicky couldn't remember. She was either O or A. Now, I think it's important to highlight that Vicky never mentioned the blood during the 911 call. Police also learned that several items were missing from Lee's room. These included a sleeping bag, her reading glasses, shoes, and some new undergarments she had received for her recent birthday. Police brought in bloodhounds to help look for Lee, but because of the really bad weather conditions, the effort to search was fruitless. When good weather finally returned, several organized searches took place, first focusing on areas where Lee could be lost or trapped, But after a few weeks, the search pattern changed to be one more in line with searching for a body. When police began their investigation, they first suspected Lee's stepfather, or at this point, former stepfather, Barney Yarborough. 
Vicky had recently separated from him, and there were rumors that he had been abusive towards Lee. Several folks claimed it was not unusual for Lee to show up to school with black eyes or other unusual injuries. When Lee went to camp each summer, she always had to meet with special counselors because they wanted to investigate her injuries. They also always wanted to discuss why she would cry hysterically when it was time to go home at the end of each day. When Yarborough was questioned, though, he provided a solid alibi and he passed a polygraph test. Since Lee's disappearance, Yarborough has passed away. It was in 1996 that he died. The police then sought to rule out Vicky, but her polygraph test indicated some deception. Um, All three of her polygraph tests indicated she was lying. Now, each test was carried out by a different person, one by the local police and then two by the FBI. She also had a very aloof demeanor, which many found suspicious concerning the circumstances. One newsacre said she expressed absolutely no emotion during conversations about Lee's disappearance. Police also found blood behind the place of Vicky's employment shortly after Lee went missing. Though there are reports that the blood was determined to be dog blood. The Tupelo police reported that every time a body was found, Vicky would magically appear at the station crying, and I quote here, crocodile tears. As of 2017, she refused to be interviewed about Lee, stating, I won't go through it again. She currently lives in Michigan. Donald Ochi, Lee's biological father, was serving in the Army at the time and stationed in Virginia. When he learned Lee was missing, his gut reaction was that she was dead. Now, strangely, Vicky did not call Donald to alert him about Lee's disappearance for about 24 hours after she was discovered missing. And it was several days before she ever mentioned the blood in the house or any sort of homicide-type theory. Once he learned of this, he took emergency leave from the Army to help in the search. Police, for some reason, gave him a polygraph test, which he passed. During some interviews, Donald claims to have been suspicious towards his ex-wife, but also was unable to believe that she'd be capable of doing such a thing. He also, when asked about if Vicky or Yarborough would be helping with the search for Lee, his only response was to laugh at the reporter. He claimed during another interview that Vicky refused to speak to him because, in his opinion, she couldn't lie to him. Donald also claims that many people in the community reached out to him secretly and encouraged him to push the investigators to focus on Vicky. Another player in this tale is Jordan Morse. He was Lee's boyfriend at the time. Now, he attended a different school, which was already in session the day Lee went missing. So he was never seriously considered a suspect or investigated in any meaningful way by the police. When he was interviewed in 2017 about kind of looking back on this event, he was extremely angry that Lee was went missing and he basically was never involved in helping in any way. On September 9th, a few weeks after Lee's disappearance, Barney Yarborough received a strange package in the mail. 
Inside were Lee's glasses and nothing else. The package was postmarked from Boonville, which is about 30 miles north of Tupelo. Now, the timing of this is interesting because police were investigating a lead that Lee had been seen in Boonville. Ultimately, that turned out to be a false identification. Forensic testing, of course, was immediately conducted on the envelope and the glasses, but sadly offered no new information. The stamps were affixed with water rather than saliva, and nothing could be discerned from the handwriting on the envelope. Now, many think the glasses were sent as a distraction in an effort to throw the investigation off track. The police took the receipt of the glasses as a bad sign. Yet Vicky tried to claim this was evidence that Lee was still alive. She never elaborated upon that. She just kept preaching that this was good news and it encouraged her and the like. In November 1993, it was mistakenly reported that Lee's body had been found. Testing proved it was the body of another missing person by the name of Pollyanna Sue Keith, who had gone missing in March of 1993. Now, Vicki jumps up and down that Oscar Mike Kearns, a local man the family knew through church, was the one to kidnap Lee. Lee regularly went to church, but almost always with her grandparents. Kearns was kind of an unofficial youth group leader at the church. He enjoyed spending time with the kids. He would kind of chaperone them on trips when volunteers were needed. And he seemed to be just a sore fellow that enjoyed being around little ones. Oddly, Kearns speculated that Lee was buried underneath a new addition to the church that he was helping to build. Apparently, this speculation came unprompted just on the job one day after the foundation had been laid. Kearns was actually arrested several months later when he kidnapped and sexually abused a girl he knew through another church after he had moved to Memphis. After being released for committing that crime, I believe he served eight years, he immediately kidnapped a couple he met at another church he started attending and held them hostage and repeatedly raped the wife. He went back to jail for a longer period this time, thankfully. And then later... During the course of Lee's investigation, it was learned that Kearns was employed with a woman who disappeared in 1988 who went to the same church he attended. Kearns has adamantly refused to speak with police regarding Lee's disappearance, and at least two members of Kearns' family believes he was involved in Lee's disappearance. As of 2017, the Tupelo police still consider Vicky to be, if not a suspect, then at least a person of interest. The police chief was quoted as saying, you still can't eliminate her. There are still too many unanswered questions for Vicky, and I don't know if that is unusual for somebody to go off to work and say, well, I just left Lee, but I'm going to call and check on her. Why well, check on her that soon after she left her? The police to this day consider Lee's disappearance to be an active case and continue to accept leads. 
However, the only hard evidence the police ever had, which was the bloodstains, has disappeared. No one can explain what happened to it. They just mark it up as lost, as if that's okay. And nothing new has been uncovered in over 25 years. Without any additional evidence, it may be impossible to prove who was involved in Lee's disappearance. So that's kind of our overview of the facts. I'm going to get into my thoughts on this one. I think it's very, very likely that Lee was murdered. The house sounds like it was a mess when Vicky got home. There's blood everywhere. Uh, had hair matted into the door frame from a blow. There's no evidence that suggests to me that it's likely that poor girl left her house alive that morning. I see two possible suspects with an outside chance at a third. Obviously, Kern sticks out as a suspect. He has a very well-established pattern of how he commits his crimes, and Lee's disappearance certainly fits into that. Kearns went to church with Lee and often participated in many activities with her youth group, which included a lot of horse riding events. And as we know, Lee was massively into horses. Kearns also just acted too weird. I mean, why throw out that Lee could be buried in the foundation that was just poured of a church edition that you're working on? If you truly believe that was a possibility, wouldn't you check the sand and other dirt before the foundation was poured? I mean, something compelled that dude to make that statement. It was either a joke made in horribly bad taste or some sort of confession. The other major suspect is, of course, Vicky. Nothing about her actions that day make a lick of sense. You've got a hurricane coming through your town and you decide that day to leave your child home alone for the very first time, ignoring the fact that she's terrified of storms. And this isn't a storm that just snuck up on them, as we sometimes have in the South. This was a hurricane that had been known to be coming into the area for days before. Even if, as a parent, you believe the reports of the storm being overblown, why take the chance and leave your child home alone for the very first time ever during a massive hurricane? I mean, Hurricane Andrew was the Katrina of the 90s. It destroyed Florida. If you don't remember how bad it was or weren't alive to experience it, look up pictures of Homestead, Florida. I mean, honestly, and not to sound crude about it, it looks like a poorly run lumberyard. That's how widespread the, and total the destruction was. And yet you're going to take a chance at this time to leave your child home alone when the storm's bearing down on your town? It just doesn't make sense. And as the police chief pointed out, why would Vicki leave for work around 7.40 and then feel compelled to call home and ultimately return home at 8.30? I mean, again, as a parent, if you feel the need to call home right after you arrive at work, you probably made the wrong decision going to work. 
it's odd behavior. Granted, in and of itself, it's not suspicious, but when you mix it in with the stew of odd behaviors we're cooking, it don't look good. And then Vicky's behaviors after finding Lee was missing were also really strange. Why did she not mention all the blood during the 911 call? Why did she wait 24 hours to call Lee's dad? And then wait additional days to tell Lee's dad about the blood in the house? Why did she refuse to participate in the searches for her daughter? She projected no visible grief until a body would be found, and then she would explode before even knowing if it was Lee. There were lots of reports that surfaced during this time that Vicky was generally so aggressive, even Yarborough was scared of her. And I find it odd that Vicky refuses to talk about her missing child when so many parents who have children that are missing spend all of their free time campaigning to make sure their child's memory is never forgotten. In fairness to Vicky, we do have to view this in the light that all people react to grief differently. And being a former soldier, Vicky may very well be very good at controlling her emotions. We also have more opportunities to talk badly about Vicky because she's at the center of this case, whereas Kearns was on the periphery for much of this investigation. I think it's also fair to consider Yarborough a suspect because, again, it was almost an open secret that he was abusing Lee. But it's important to know he was not living at the house the day Lee went missing. Absolutely, he could have come over to the house but there does not appear to be a motive for him to commit this crime. Frankly, I'm not certain Lee would have been inclined to let him into the house either. Everything I've read about the two is they had no relationship. They lived in the same place, and that was as far as it went. Some girls that would come over to spend the night periodically said that he just ignored Lee. So ultimately, what do I think? All right, well, first of all, I think it's absolutely key evidence that there's no evidence of forced entry. To me, that virtually eliminates anyone who wasn't within Lee's inner circle from committing the crime. The killer or kidnapper, hopefully just kidnapper, was allowed into the house or had means to enter the house peaceably. So, that supports at least two of the three suspects we've discussed. Again, while I think Yarborough has a very checkered past, I don't think he murdered Lee. We don't know what type of access he would have had to the house after he and Vicky separated, though I suspect it would be very limited. I also don't know what his motive would be. No report I could find discusses him in a flattering manner, but I don't think he did the killing. Honestly, my opinion, just from reading everything about him and whatnot, he sounds like a dude who just wants to drink beer and watch football and do nothing else. He doesn't want to take care of a kid. He doesn't want to be a partner. He just wanted to hang out and do his laziness. 
I don't buy into any theories that he was the murderer. Kearns clearly had the established M.O. Pray on girls he met at church. And like we've discussed, Lee went to church with Kearns. Thus, it's possible he would be a very likely perpetrator of this crime. His comments about Lee's demise, very concerning. The question I have is, would Lee open the door for Kearns? Did they have a close relationship? Just because they shared a church and participate in some of the same events through the church doesn't mean that they were close. I didn't find any reports or information that they had a unique bond or that Kearns spent more time paying attention to Lee than other people in the church. I also find that what, what really makes Kearns the unlikely kidnapper to me is the tiny window he had to work with. If you're going to kidnap Lee, you're going to be striking on the very first day she's ever left home alone. And you're going to do so in a window of opportunity that's less than an hour long. He had, if, if he did do this, he had to be dang lucky to pull this off. His refusal to speak about Lee to authorities, I'm sure, raises flags with a lot of people. But he's someone who's been on the wrong side of the legal system for most of his life and probably feels no obligation to help the cops. That being said, like I mentioned before, Kern says at least two relatives who insist he had something to do with Lee's disappearance. I think if there had been any signs of a forced entry, I could be convinced that Kearns did this. But again, I have a really hard time with that narrow window he had to pull this off. So that leaves Vicky as the most likely suspect in my mind. She obviously had the easiest access to Lee. They had a bit of a tense relationship. Vicky had a very demanding set of standards for her family, including Lee. And her actions immediately before and after Lee's disappearance are odd. What I can't offer is a motive grounded in anything but speculation. If Vicky killed Lee, I don't think it was intentional. Now remember, no one but Vicky saw Lee the morning of August 27th meaning the killing could have happened any time that morning. The amount of blood at the scene seems to be significant, and it's clearly suffered at least one significant head wound, as we discussed. Uh, being, you know, that, that's going to take a good amount of force to hit someone hard enough to leave hair behind. Vicky's a former soldier. She knows how to fight. She may have the skill and the strength necessary to inflict that type of wound. There's also the fact that a weak effort was made to clean up the blood. I'm guessing the perpetrator discovered that it would take too long to do a thorough job to get rid of the blood, so they gave up. And then there's Lee's missing belongings. They were an odd collection of items. A sleeping bag, underwear, and that's about it. So with that, odd collection of items that were gathered. I think I can add to the story by saying 
argument during the morning of the 27th. Vicky gets a little too aggressive, pushes Lee against the dorm frame. Lee hits her head badly. Vicky then strips Lee naked to get her out of her clothes, gets her to put on fresh underwear, maybe from this point of view that she wouldn't want her daughter to be buried or found naked, and then wraps Lee in a sleeping bag to make transporting the body easier. Vicky then tries to clean up the crime scene, but finds it too challenging in the short amount of time she had. So she throws Lee's body into her car, gets to work, puts her in the dumpster, possibly accounting for the blood that was found there. I know the local police said it was dog's blood, but I really have a hard time having a lot of faith in an organization. They can't keep track of the evidence they had on this case. If... A person works at an office building. They likely know the pickup schedule for the dumpster. And if that was a day that pickup was coming, that's the perfect time to dispose of the body. Once you tell the police they're looking for a runaway, the county dump is not going to be one of the places they look at first. I think failing to participate in the search or offer any meaningful help to the police looks very suspicious. We cannot forget the three polygraph tests she failed. Her reaction to the glasses being mailed is inconsistent with everyone else's reaction. It's also incredibly convenient that the glasses would be mailed from the same location where a false lead was being investigated. And it's not like it would take a heroic effort to drive to Boonesville to mail the glasses. And then there's Donald, the ex-husband, who probably knew Vicky as well as anyone in the story. And it appears that he absolutely did not trust her. So I throw my chips down on Vicky being the killer. There's just too much not adding up here her actions and her stories don't fit with the evidence in any way kearns is scummy as all get out but i just don't believe he had the access unless he got exceptionally lucky to try to pick lee up the very first time she's left home alone so that's where i come down on this one What about you? Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where you can improve on my theory. Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com with your thoughts or discuss it in our fancy private Facebook group, which if you haven't joined, shame on you. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up this episode. I really hope someone out there can help solve this case because right now we got nothing. Obviously, it's very sad that child can be missing for a over a quarter century without any new leads or evidence popping up. Enough with the sadness now. We're moving on to the palate cleanser. Here's our carefully selected joke of the week. Why do Eskimos do their laundry in Tide? Because it's too cold out Tide. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, I I just I wish I had the knack to pick such excellent jokes as my child. 
Okay, thank you all for listening. I've been saying it a lot recently, but we are growing at a rapid, crazy pace. And that is all thanks to you, darling people. Please keep sharing the tapes, leaving reviews, and subscribing. Also, join our private Facebook group. I'm telling you, we will be doing some fun things in there. And if you don't sign up soon, you're going to miss a chance to win an Amazon gift card. You literally have to do nothing but join the dang group. The deadline to sign up and be entered to win the gift card is June 20th. Plus, there's bonus rewards that if we all work together, we can enjoy. And I'll also throw in a shout for our new website, kmhpodcast.com. That's going to be it for this week. Next week, I believe we'll be covering the tale of a serial killer. So come back for that bucket of laughs. Please, please keep staying safe and keep showing love to your neighbors. This is a crazy time in our world, and there's no reason why we need to make it crazier. Just be smart. Thank you again for being part of this amazing listening squad. I love y'all. appreciate all y'all listening. And with that, peace out, Girl Scout. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.